Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. It didn't feel like I was talking with a pastor or a teacher. It was like my friend that I'm telling a dirty little secret to. And very quickly that turned into, well, have you ever kissed a boy? Um, Have you ever done anything with a boy? Or have you ever let a boy do this? And that, it was a very slow blurring of the lines of what is appropriate and not appropriate. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode. And guess what? Where are we today, Tara? We are in Dallas, Texas. For Obsessed Fest. Tara, I think you're excited to get down with who? The drag queens. You are all about the drag queens. It's going to be fun. But there is some breaking news that we want to share in a case that has literally been at a standstill for almost 20 years. 18 years to be exact. She went missing May 30th, 2005. Yes, in Aruba. And that is the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Joran Vandersloot, uh, a judge, released today that he confessed to her murder. I'm really grateful that there's some closure to this, but you have some more details, Tara. Her mom, Beth Holloway, gave a statement saying basically that the case is closed. You know, this isn't really closure for them, but the case is over now. Yeah, and he admitted, and we're not going to get into the details of what he did, but it was absolutely horrific. Um, And he also took the life of another young woman, uh, Stephanie Flores, I believe, right? Yes. Which he and he's had a long history. He was extorting the Holloway family, and that's what he was currently incarcerated over. So he was incarcerated for the other uh, Stephanie Flores's murder, and then he was facing charges for the extortion of Natalie Holloway, and then that's when he ended up confessing, and it was confirmed by a polygraph. Yeah, because the, the judge made him take a polygraph. I mean, look, this is a bad dude that will never be see the light of day prayerfully. Um, but our prayers go out to the Holloway family and it seems like Beth has some, has some closure with this. So yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yes. We have a fantastic guest on today's episode, Rachel Peach. Yes. I love Rachel Peach. I actually connected with her right as the Dirty John series came out. And another friend told me about her and her story, her horrific story. And I really got to connect with her as a survivor. And that was honestly like the first survivor I really got to connect with after my trauma even. And so I'm really thankful for her coming on and sharing her story today because, you know, it happened near me in Canyon Lake, California. Yeah, This guy abused and groomed other girls. Yeah. And the church that were his students. I remember this case because I remember reading about this and just, man, <laughs> these these are bad, bad people. Thank goodness for Rachel. She's had some resolution. She's happily married. She's living her best life now. And she's going to tell us all about her story. So what do you say we get into it? Let's get into it. 
Well, thank you, Rachel, for coming on the program today. Can you start by telling us your survivor story? Yes. And thank you for having me, Tara. I know this has been a long time coming. Um, thank you. So I guess my story um, began... So my family moved to Southern California um, around, I was like second or third grade. And right after we moved there, uh, we started attending a church in that area. And I grew up in Riverside County, which is right next to Orange County and a little town called Wildemar, um, which is like right next to like Elsinore, um, the Temecula Valley kind of area. And um, we started attending a church there basically as soon as we moved there. And um, we got pretty involved right off the bat. And this church was connected to um, a much bigger group of churches called the IFB, which is also known as Independent Fundamental Baptists. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the Shiny Happy People documentary on Amazon um, about the IBLP, which is very close, but a little bit different. And um, these the circle of churches, they are very strict, very conservative, um, many, many rules. And so our whole lifestyle completely changed as soon as we got involved into this church. And that was very shocking and new to me because things that were totally fine are now looked at as bad. Um, like the girls and the women, we weren't allowed to wear pants or shorts. We were only allowed to wear skirts or dresses. Um, we weren't allowed to talk about movies. We weren't allowed. It was encouraged to not even own a television. Um, we weren't allowed to listen to music. It would only be church music. And even some church music wasn't allowed. It can only be what they were producing and selling. So it was an extremely controlled, sheltered environment. And this like became the new normal. <laughs> and this was a very confusing time because I didn't understand why certain things were wrong or bad or against the rules and not allowed um, because we had never lived that way. And now all of a sudden, this was a huge change. And it didn't take long that they also had a Christian school with this church. And so I was eventually enrolled in the school, which only brought on a million more rules. And um, I, I mean, the time that I was there, it was this church's heyday. So, I mean, there'd be a thousand plus people there on a Sunday. So it was a huge community of people. And when my classmates and friends that I'm making all live this way and they make it look normal. I just kind of ad adapted it as well. And as you get older, as any great cult does, <laughs> there's a lot of brainwashing involved as well. And so I really, truly started to believe some of these beliefs, even though in my mind, in the back of my head, I'm like, this is kind of crazy. And like, I don't see what the big deal is. But if everyone else is doing it, I, I'm just going to go along with it. And so that was very much where my head was in this whole time. And so um, I was in like third or fourth grade. So I would have been around like eight, nine or 10. And this was my first time I got to go to camp. And the church also hosted this camp every summer. And so I got to go to summer camp. And 
the youth pastor of the church um, was one of the main directors at the camp. And I had seen him around every Sunday just because he was a familiar face and he would be very involved in the church service. So I knew who he was just from going to church. And um, his name was Victor Montero and he was the youth pastor. And um, that was my first time meeting him. I was like eight or nine. And my first impression of him was he was a very fun person. Um, and a lot of the leadership at that church, in my opinion, um, just because of how strict and how many rules the environment had, the all the adults in my eyes kind of seemed like a stick in the mud kind of personality, um, just because they were just so serious. And you always kind of felt like you had your guard up like if they overheard you talking or something, you can get in trouble. And I mean, maybe that was just me and my friends, <laughs> but you always just kind of felt like they couldn't let loose. They couldn't have fun. Like it was always just kind of making sure like you didn't want to sit at their table. You didn't want them on your bus. Like um, just because of the environment. Whereas with Victor, he was someone that he was a lot of fun to be around. And you would want to be on his bus. You would want to sit at his table just because he was a very funny person. He knew how to make you laugh. He knew how to connect with you. And it was also confusing, though, because there was rules like you're not allowed to talk about movies. You're not allowed to watch movies. But then he would quote a movie and kind of be fun and cool with you. And it was like oh, you're the, you're the cool adult. You're the fun adult. Like you're the one that we can kind of let loose and not be so guarded around. And so he was someone that I trusted right away. And I looked up to right away and I had a lot of fun being around him. I mean, even as an eight, nine-year-old. And um, I, so I was very excited to get into the youth group. It was something that we were all looking forward to. Um just because of his leadership and how much fun he was. Um, and um, with going to the school as well, I mean, you're with these people every day. So it's Monday through Friday for school. Saturday, they would have like a ministry day. And so you had to be a part of that. Or there was like an activity, whether um, with the youth group, like a teen activity, we would like go to Dana Point at the beach. We would go um play volleyball somewhere or go, go bowling like I mean you are always with them and then Sunday you're with them all day for church so I'm around this person all the time and so you can't help but build relationships with these people just because of how much you're interacting with them and so once I got in around like ninth grade um he had he had my phone number and he would text me just like to help out with different things with the youth group, whether it was like, Hey, um, could you come early tonight and help set this up? Or do you think you could stay later to help clean up? Um, and I just kind of became someone that he could depend on because I like to help out and I'm a people pleaser and I don't know how to say no. <laughs> and so I, um, it was a very like harmless you know, normal texts of like, hey, could you be there early tonight? Hey, thanks for helping out. Or the occasional like youth pastor vibe of like, hey, praying for you or thought of this Bible verse to send you. 
very normal, uh, nothing alarming. And um, by the time I was in 10th grade, that texting kind of ramped up a little bit to where it became an everyday kind of conversation. And at the time, I remember it wasn't something that I was nervous about, like people seeing my phone or wanting to delete the messages because there was nothing that I would look at as a red flag or concerning, but it was turning into a constant conversation where it was almost every day I could expect a text from him. And keep in mind, I'm 15 at this time, 14, 15, and he's 35, 36. (laughs) And nothing about keeping a regular conversation with a minor is normal. But at the time that felt so normal because it was him and he's the youth pastor. And um, it slowly turned into more of like, hey, I know that like, you're not allowed to listen to music, but like, I know you listen to music. Like, what music are you listening to? And then I would be like, oh, well, I like this and I like so-and-so. I like Taylor Swift. (laughs) And then it was like, oh, well, what movies are you watching? Have you ever done this? Have you ever gone to a movie theater? Which was like another huge rule. Like, you could not go to the movie theater. And... um, you also weren't allowed to have any kind of social media whatsoever. And so he would ask like, Oh, like, do you have a MySpace or do you have, keep in mind this early two thousands. Do you have a MySpace or do you have a Facebook? And it was like, it was like, I was allowed to tell him things that I was doing that was wrong because he wouldn't get you in trouble. Like it felt, It didn't feel like I was talking with a pastor or a teacher. It was like my friend that I'm telling a dirty little secret to. And very quickly that turned into, well, have you ever kissed a boy? Um, Have you ever done anything with a boy? Or have you ever let a boy do this? And that, what it was a very slow blurring of the lines of what is appropriate and not appropriate. And I said, well, no, like we're not. And like, we weren't allowed to be doing anything with like boys and girls. Like if you got caught kissing your boyfriend or something, you would literally be expelled from school. Like it was, this was a extremely strict environment. I, we were out to sell candy and he had a group of us in the car with him and um, he was dropping us off at different spots to go sell candy in front of different stores and he wanted me to hang back so I was going to be the last one to get out of the car. Um, instead of going to sell candy, he just kept driving and we ended up in this dark parking lot where we're just sitting with each other in the car And I'm just like a kind of like, what's going on? Like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. And he just immediately starts talking about his job and his work at the church and some stress that he's going through with the church and the youth group and the amount of pressure he's under, um, starts immediately talking about his marriage and opening up 
to things with me regarding that, talking about his family, some problems with his mom that he was experiencing. And I mean, just some really almost like trauma dumping on me in a way of just all this really heavy stuff that he was dealing with. And I was immediately, I felt bad for him. I felt sorry, but it was also like, I, I, I've never seen this side of him, this like vulnerable kind of side. And there was things that I didn't know that was going on in the church and some of the stress that he was under. So now I felt like I'm in on this piece of information that nobody else gets to know. And he's like, starts crying as he's telling me about these things. And I, I mean, I felt really bad for him. I felt horrible that I had no idea that he was under all this stress and all this pressure. And he just says, sorry, I I could just really use a hug right now. And I'm like, okay. So I go in to give him a hug. I just felt so bad for this person that I, I cared a lot about. And he brings me in like even closer. I mean, like a full on like tight hug and just starts rubbing my back and just crying into my shoulder and just this very intense, intimate, emotional experience with this person. And he brings himself back and almost like catches himself. Like, I'm so sorry. I I should not have told you that. I'm really sorry about that. You're going to go tell your friends now. You're going to go tell someone you're going to talk about this immediately making me feel like I need to like prove my maturity or something to him and prove my protection of him almost. And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything like you're, you're okay. Like, don't think that it's okay. And he's like, Oh, that I just knew that I could trust you. And I just wanted to be able to know that I could trust you. And I really wanted, like, I've never been able to talk about these kind of things with anybody else. And it just feels so safe and comfortable to talk about with you. And I mean, it's like classic predator line of you're just so mature for your age to talk with about this. And, you know, I just I just needed to get that off my chest. And I'm like, well, good. You know, like, I hope you feel better. Like, I'm really sorry. And just this very intense. I have never had this like deep connection with him before or any kind of the way he talked about church or his wife or other people, I had never seen this side of him. So, I mean, I couldn't help but feel like I'm honored that he would trust me with this. And I'm, you're right. I am so mature that I can handle this and that I can, you can talk to me about this when other adults can't even understand these kind of things. And so it left me very confused with, what all that was about. Um, but I can look back and see that that night was the night that changed the trajectory of the next four years because it was him testing to see, is she going to say something or not? And can I trust her to keep her mouth shut? And is she someone that is going to pull away or not be okay with certain things? And I mean, all, I can identify all of this as grooming now. Of course, you don't um, you don't identify that as it's happening. <laughs> um, that line he had worked so hard and so long to blur. 
so that by the time that line is crossed, I don't recognize it as being crossed because I don't see the red flag. That red flag became a normal thing with him. And after that night from there, it was like the, I don't know if you call it a relationship, the dynamic between us. I mean, it completely changed. Um, it immediately turned into something physical um, with, you know, either kissing or whatever it might be. And that immediately turned into sex. And I mean, from there, it was, it was not good. And it was a very, very toxic, very abusive, very manipulative dynamic with us. Um, when he's someone that, you know, he's my youth pastor, or even sometimes my teacher in different classes in school, um, or would preach chapel. And it's like you, he would call me down to his office during school to sexually assault me. And then two hours later, be preaching in chapel, as I'm sitting there thinking about what had just happened with this person, not that long before this. I mean, so it was so confusing and so I didn't even know how to process this or understand what it was that was happening. And what started as like, this was someone that obviously I, I really looked up to and I really cared about and I really admired. And I mean, he was someone that could be so funny and so sweet with you. And that was the person that I saw. And then the minute that I didn't want to go forward with certain things sexually, or if I would start to say no or hesitate with what he was wanting, it was like the switch would flip. And I saw, I saw this other person in him that I, I did not know existed. And it was this evil and cruel and mean person that I didn't even know he was capable of having <laughs> inside of him and someone that I had known for so long and I had a really good relationship with I mean up until this point that is now I'm not comfortable with what he wants to do sexually say so I say no or I'm like I don't know like I show hesitancy and it's like well then what are you even doing here get out of here and it's like this jarring, like, wait, what? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you heard what I said, get out of my face, get out of here. And it's like, I, you know, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> it, it broke me. It was devastating to see that side of him. And I, I mean, I knew what was happening was wrong as far as the age difference and the dynamic of his of the power role in this and I'm like I know he's married like I know none of these things make sense still in my head though I'm like I don't know if this is illegal I don't think this is like against the law like this is just it I, I didn't know how to understand or process any of this and so as um my senior year there was two different situations that were that happened with him that were very scary. And I was more than ready for just this to be over and to be done with. But I didn't know how to get out of it, so to say. So I saw like graduation as my way of like, I'm leaving. And 
I'm ending it without having to end it, if that makes sense. And I was getting a lot of anxiety, though, about leaving because it also worried me that I'm I'm leaving with a youth group full of girls back there that he's working with every day. <laughs> and I remember I it was right up until graduation, I asked him and I said, would you ever do this with somebody else? with another girl. And he looked at me like I was the craziest person. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, it, it does just kind of worry me that I'm leaving. And would you do this to somebody else? And I said, or like, I don't, was this just a me thing? Like, what, what was this? And I was getting a little bold with asking him questions. And he was like, this is all you this was all you, you wanted this, you made this happen, you started this. And it also the environment with the church that I was in, so much was put on women and girls. So I already kind of had this idea in my head that like, I mean, you're being taught as a young kid, that what you wear, how you act, what you say around men, will predict what they do. <laughs> and so I already kind of had this question in the back of my head, like, what did I do? What did I say? What did I wear that made him act on this or that made him want to do this? Like, that was already kind of where my head was. So now he's straight up telling me, you wanted all of this. This was all you. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I didn't know. I, I, like, I don't really agree with that. But I I don't really know how to answer that. And then it was like, you realize I risked my job for you. I risked my marriage for you. I risked this and that. I did all of this for you because that's what you wanted. You made me do A, B, and C. You wanted all this. So then I, I walked away feeling like this was all my fault. I, I'm the one that made this person, this man do that. And I'm horrible for that. And I didn't really have a worry or a concern or even a thought that he would do this to somebody else because I had all the blame on me. This had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with me. And I made him do this. And so I, I could see all this as grooming and manipulation and gaslighting, but you don't see that when it's happening. <laughs> and so I, I walked away from it, I mean, hating myself and spent years and years with so much hatred towards myself of what happened with him and how much I blamed myself to the point that I almost years later wanted to contact him and apologize to him for what had happened because that's how bad I felt that I made him do this. And my way of dealing with what I didn't even recognize as trauma at the time was taking it and putting it on the shelf and closing that door never to be dealt with. And I never told anyone. I never told my friends. I never, never said a word. And I didn't even want to think about it because even if I would think about it, I'd just get mad at myself. I wouldn't even get mad at him. I'd get mad at me. And 
years went by and I mean, we slowly lost touch. There wasn't really much communication with us anymore. We had been friends on social media and I just eventually removed him and it wasn't something, it was just, I'm going to let this die. It's going to go to the grave, never to be dealt with. And that was my way of handling it. And I was more than okay with that. And it had been um, about eight years now. I graduated in 2010. And they they say that your brain stops developing at 25 or it's fully developed at 25. And I feel like it's like I turned 25 and my brain was like, all right, time to deal with this. <laughs> and everything that I had ignored or pushed so far to the back of my head, it was like right at the forefront. And I started having these very intrusive memories, very intrusive thoughts. I started having dreams and nightmares about him and remembering different situations or conversations. And I didn't want to though. I didn't want to be thinking of any of this, but it really was like my body was forcing me to think about this. And um, the timing of it was weird. This was the beginning of 2018. Um which was the same time that all the Larry Nasser and the USA Gymnastics um, stuff was coming out. And I remember hearing some of the girls describe what they went through and just thinking like, that sounds exactly like how Victor was, that the language that he would use and the manipulation. And I'm like, this, like, it's all kind of the same. Like it's, these guys all kind of talk the same and act the same. And I, I slowly started to see him in a different light that I had never really seen before. I never, I knew he wasn't a good person based on our experiences, but I still didn't put blame on him. And as 2018 went on, um, I don't know if it was because I, I was in a marriage now, I'm a little bit older I slowly started to see it as if I ever found out my husband was doing this to a 15-year-old girl, I wouldn't get mad at the girl. <laughs> I would get mad at him. And I I had a shift, but I was not telling anyone this. I was this was all internal work that I was doing, but it was still was like if you say anything, you don't know what could come of this. And I mean this was a very it was a big church. He was a very respected name. This was a, I mean, I, I didn't even want to entertain the thought of saying anything. And so um, I, in April or May of, it was like March in the springtime of 2018, I had reconnected with a friend that was from the church as well. And we just kind of ran into each other. We were living in the same city at the time. And it just kind of turned into like, hey, like we should meet up next week too. Um, so it kind of turned into this like we saw each other quite frequently and just kind of like catching up over I have not seen her in a long time. Um, I knew that she was close with Victor and she knew that I was close with Victor, but neither of us brought up his name. And I kind of picked up on that that she never asked, I never asked her about him and she never brought his name up either. And it really wasn't a secret that both of us were close with him back when we were in high school. And 
in May, it was May of 2018, I get a phone call and her and I, her name was April and I'm saying her name because I know she wouldn't mind. Um, we have a mutual friend and that mutual friend calls me and she says, you need to call April right now. You need to talk with her. And I said, okay. I'm like, I just saw her last week. Like what's going on? And she goes, no, 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 no. I don't know what to do, but you would know what to do because you're from that church. And I just feel like she needs to talk to you about this and you, you would know what to do. I said, tell me what's going on. And she says, April just told me that she was molested by Victor when she was 13 years old. And it went on for a long time. And I freeze. (laughs) This is the first time I'm hearing that there's another girl, that it wasn't just me. And also April is seven years older than me. So it's also this realization that this, he was doing this before I ever stepped foot in this youth group. And I immediately start shaking and I just say, okay, I'll talk to her. And I just hang up. And I'm also immediately like, no, we're not doing this. I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be involved in whatever it's coming and whatever she wants to do. I did not want to deal with this. I had never told anyone. I had never. That's something that once you say, you can't unsay it. And I was not about to get involved in that. And, but I text April and I just said, I can come over after work. Let's talk. She's like, okay. So I'm already like, no, you you don't say anything. Don't, you're not getting involved. See what she wants, but don't get involved. And A lot of it had to do with fear. Obviously, I'm terrified of saying anything. And I definitely was still dealing with a lot of guilt and shame and blame on my part that I'm still under this idea that people will get mad at me and not mad at him. It was very messy. And I go to April's house and she says... I, I just don't know what else to do. I'm at a loss. And I don't know. I thought maybe I could talk with you about this. And I guess there's a part of me that I'm just trying to find another girl. And I said, okay. I said, well, did you tell anybody? Am I the first person you're telling this to? Or did you tell anyone else? And she goes, yeah, I told my dad. And I'm immediately relieved, like, okay, the pressure's off me. (laughs) And she said, and my dad immediately went to the pastor of the church and told him. And the pastor that works, still works there, um, has been the pastor from day one. So 30 plus years. And Victor worked there for almost 20 years. So, I mean, if if you're going to turn him in, he like... He should know. This is someone that hired him. This is someone that worked belong alongside him for 20 plus years. And I said, Oh, like I'm immediately like, thank God he knows. Like you told him, like, taken care of. I can leave. I don't need to be a part of this. And I said, Okay. She said, and my dad told the pastor. I said, Oh, thank God. And she goes, Well, that was six months ago. And I'm I, I immediately know this is not good. This is going to get very messy. And I said, okay, and what happened? And she goes, nothing. 
She's like, he never called me. He never said anything. And everything looks like business as usual over there. So I, I don't think he's doing anything. I said, well, what did he tell your dad? And she said, well, he'll take care of it. He'll handle it. No, nothing to worry about. And that was six months ago. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, this cannot be happening. Like, this is the worst situation I could have thought of is happening in real time. And I said, okay. I said, so what else do we do? And I said, do you want to go to the police or what do you, what do you want to do? And she said, well, why I really wanted to reach out with the pastor um, is because I kind of already looked into what the California laws are and the statute of limitations I think is up. And so what I'm worried about is if I go to the police by myself with an allegation from 10 plus years ago with no evidence and no other victims, are they just going to say, sorry, can't do anything for you? And she's like, and there goes my shot. And she said, but I really wanted the pastor if he possibly maybe knew if there was a report about him ever, or if there was some kind of internal investigation, if there was something so that there's me and another girl so that the case looks stronger and it's not just shut down. And she said, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to do. And she looked at me dead in the eye and said, I guess that's why I wanted to ask you too. Did anything ever happen with you? And I knew in that moment, if you answer this honestly, you don't know what's coming for you. <laughs> and these are things you have not thought about or wanted to accept. And you're not ready to deal with that. And I looked at her in the eye and I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm like, nothing, nothing ever happened. And I will never forget that look of like, okay, like now what? <laughs> and she... I said, but you know, I'll, I'll help in any way I can, but I, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. And she said, well, before this kind of goes public or whatever, there was a certain family member of his that she really wanted them to know just so that they weren't kind of blindsided with this information. And I saw that as my opportunity as getting involved, but not getting involved. And I'm like, I'll do that. I said, I can tell them. She's like, thank you so much. And I said, it's fine. I'll do that. So it's like, I'll help her so that I don't feel bad about myself, but then I'm out. I'm, I'm not getting more involved. And so I left her house and I made that phone call and I let them know about there's an accusation that's coming out about him. Um, but we both said, and I was kind of thinking this too, I did not want him to know that it was April that was making an accusation against him. Also too, because I kind of knew in the back of my head if he starts talking and guessing, he's going to get himself in trouble. And that's what I wanted. <laughs> and so I said, do not tell him that it's April making this accusation. And they said, I, I won't. And I knew obviously it would get back to him though, that you know there was some kind of conversation going on. And that weekend, I get a message from Victor who I had not talked to in a long time at this point. And he said, hey, can you call me? I didn't answer. He texted me again. Hey, we really need to talk. Can you call me? I still didn't answer. 
And he says, look, I'm not stupid. I know it was so-and-so that is talking to you. And I hope you're ready for everyone to find out what a whore you are. And the name that he said in that message was not April's name. It was another girl. And it was a girl who was about three to four years younger than me. So I'm also realizing in real time, this is something that went on before I stepped foot and long after I left. And as most predators are, they, they can't stop. And they can only stop if you stop them. They will not stop on their own. And I immediately saw the severity of this situation, that this is way bigger than I could have ever imagined. And um, it was right after then that that family member also texted me and said, or she called me, she kept saying, he keeps asking if it's so-and-so, do you think that means something? Why is he so convinced it's so-and-so? And I'm in the middle, like, I didn't ask for any of this. I don't even want to be involved in this. And so that weekend or that week, I told April that we needed to talk. And I said, I know you don't want to go to the police by yourself, but I, you need to go to the police. And I said, I think this is way bigger than we could have imagined. And I didn't want to tell her about the message that he had sent me um, because I was worried that she would ask, like, why is he reaching out to you? And, but I knew that he had told that family member that same name. And I said, he, he like basically confessed to this person's name. And I, I know that means there's another girl. And I said, I don't know what's going to come from this either, but I think you need to go to the police. And she agreed. And it was within that week, the first week of June of 2018, she went to the police, filed a police report and included the information that, you know, he was talking. He said something to the family member. This is their contact information. Um, the pastor knows about this. You can talk with them. I mean, gave them multiple resources for her case. And I'm like, okay, everything's fine. She went to the police. They're going to handle it. I don't need to be involved anymore. No one's ever going to find out about me. I'm good to go. So it was a couple days later. April calls me and I knew right away something's wrong. And she's uh, I'm crying on the phone, devastated. And I said, what's going on? And she goes, they dropped the case. The case is dropped. It's done. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, they called that family member. And that family member says, they don't know. That never happened. He never said a name. And they talked with the pastor from the church. And he says that he just found out about this two weeks ago. He never learned about it six months ago. He just found out two weeks ago. And he's shocked by all this, that he never knew any of this. And since it was so long ago and there's no evidence, they basically just said, sorry, can't do anything. Case is dropped. And I'm sitting there like, Oh, great. <laughs> I have two options. Either I get involved and I come forward and I don't know what's coming from that. I'm terrified to even think about moving forward in a police investigation with this. Or I say absolutely nothing, act like it never happened. And how do I live with myself 
and I watch him get away with it. And I mean, it was, I, I, it was a very bad time and I, I knew what I needed to do, but I did not want to do it. And so finally I'm like, you, you are not going to live with yourself if you let him get away with this and you have an opportunity to do something, you need to get involved. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Rachel Peach. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.